Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence, murder, pedophilia, and pornography that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On March 2nd, 2015, Bristol police knocked on the front door of the two-story red brick house at 9 Barton Court and were greeted by 29-year-old Donovan Demetrius. When the officers asked to search the residence, Donovan obliged, sweat gathering on his forehead. To his surprise, the police walked straight through the house and out the back door, directly to the garden shed. Donovan tried to swallow his nerves as they opened the shed doors. In the dark back corner of the shed, behind the lawnmower and some shovels, they found four suitcases stacked on top of one another, just like they'd been told they would. One officer unzipped the topmost case to reveal a thick sheet of crumpled up cling wrap. Beneath this were heavier items, all wrapped in layer after layer of the same plastic material. The officer grabbed one bundle from the suitcase. He pulled off what seemed like an entire roll of cling wrap before the material was thin enough to be transparent. When he saw what was inside, he handed the bundle to another officer and ran out of the shed, sure he was going to be sick. The other officer stared wide-eyed at the thinly veiled object in his palms. It was a human hand severed at the wrist. The fingernails were polished, cherry red. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. Last week, we discussed the relationships between 16-year-old Becky Watts her stepbrother, 28-year-old Nathan Matthews, and his girlfriend, 21-year-old Shauna Hoare. In late 2014, Nathan started talking to Shauna about kidnapping teenage girls, and Becky became his target. This week, we'll see how Nathan's violent obsessions culminated in Becky's murder. We'll follow police as they search for the truth and discuss how Nathan and Shauna continually try to escape responsibility for one of the most gruesome crimes in the history of Bristol United Kingdom. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? 
Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Fifty-year-old Darren Goldsworthy came home from work around 11 p.m. on Tuesday, February 17, 2015. He made his 16-year-old daughter, Becky Watts, a pizza before he headed to bed. The next day, Becky hung out at a rugby club party, then stayed the night at her friend's house. She came home at approximately 8.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 19th. That morning, she texted her boyfriend, 17-year-old Luke Oberhansley, and made plans to meet up with him that afternoon. Around 11.30 a.m., 28-year-old Nathan and 21-year-old Shauna, along with their toddler daughter, showed up to the house in St. George. When they walked inside, they heard loud music coming from Becky's bedroom. It's impossible to know exactly what transpired after the couple arrived. According to Nathan, Shauna turned on a television show for their daughter to watch, then went to the backyard to smoke a cigarette. With Shauna away, Nathan saw his opportunity. He ran to his car and grabbed the kidnapping kit he put together a few months before. It included a stun gun, handcuffs, duct tape, and a black ski mask. With the mask covering his face, Nathan barged into Becky's bedroom and attacked her. But Becky fought back. Despite being considerably smaller than her stepbrother, she was able to wrestle the mask off his face. Nathan said without his disguise, he panicked. When Becky removed his mask, she upset the balance of power between them. She took away his control of the situation, and Nathan reacted violently. Before I continue with Nathan's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. In their article, The Dominance Behavioral System and Psychopathology, psychologists from the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Bridgeport, Connecticut, analyzed the connection between dominance behavior and the quest for power. According to the article, people with high dominance motivation have been found to demonstrate more emotional reactivity when faced with dominance challenges. Nathan's history of violent behavior and pedophilia illustrates his drive for power over others. When he attacked Becky, his mask gave him anonymity, and that anonymity gave him the upper hand. In tearing off his mask, Becky not only revealed his identity, but also gained power in their altercation. Knowing who her attacker was meant she could later report and identify him to police. Nathan reacted with fear and panic. To regain the dominance he'd lost, he grabbed 16-year-old Becky by the throat and squeezed until she stopped moving. Then he grabbed his stepsister's phone, tablet, laptop, and a pair of shoes in an attempt to make it look like she'd run away. He stuffed everything, including Becky's body, into the trunk of his car. 
According to Nathan, it was all over before Shauna had even finished her cigarette. When she came back inside, he told her Becky had gone to hang out with her boyfriend. Becky's stepmom, Angie, returned home at approximately 12.45 p.m. Nathan repeated the same story to her. Becky had left about an hour before to go meet up with Luke. Meanwhile, Luke himself wondered where Becky was. They had made plans to meet up, but suddenly she stopped responding to his messages. At 12.06 p.m., he texted her to let her know he'd just left a dentist appointment, but she never answered. At 12.46, he followed up, but to no avail. Another hour passed before he texted again. Luke was perplexed. Normally, Becky responded within minutes. At 3 p.m., he tried to call her. It went straight to voicemail. He was starting to get worried. At 5 p.m., he drove to Darren and Angie's house. Shauna answered the door and told him she had no idea where Becky was. Despite Luke's insistence that Becky would never cancel plans without letting him know, Shauna shrugged it off. Becky came and went as she pleased, and it wasn't unusual for her to spend evenings out. Luke left the house, trailed by a terrible feeling of dread. Nathan and Shauna stayed with Angie until around 7 o'clock that evening. They picked up Chinese takeout on the way back to their home on Barton Hill, then watched television and played Monopoly until they went to sleep. All in all, Nathan reports having a boring night in, while his stepsister's body sat in the trunk of his car. As Shauna and Nathan slept in Barton Hill, Angie and Darren lay awake in St. George. Becky's lack of communication was concerning. They allowed her to enjoy quite a bit of freedom, but only because she always let them know where she was. Still, Darren and Angie didn't jump to the conclusion that something bad had happened. They assumed Becky was just being irresponsible, typical for a 16-year-old. The next morning, February 20th, Darren left early for work. Angie watched the clock, hoping Becky would knock on the door at any moment. By 2.30 p.m., Luke showed up again, this time with three of Becky's closest friends alongside him. None of them had heard from her either. Angie's throat tightened with panic. She called Darren, who rushed home from work, and searched Becky's room for clues. Although Nathan thought he was being clever when he took Becky's phone, tablet, and laptop, he forgot some items that were equally as important. Her purse, her toothbrush, and the charging cables for her electronics had all been left behind. At that point, Darren knew something wasn't right. He called the Bristol Police Department and reported Becky missing. As much as Darren tried to convince the police that Becky's behavior was out of the ordinary, they didn't rush over. Bristol has a population of around half a million people, and thousands of people go missing in the UK every year, most of whom are later found with friends or extended family. Police assumed Becky's disappearance was another runaway. But Darren knew better. While he waited for officers to arrive, he called everyone who might have had information about Becky. Nobody had seen his daughter. 
While Darren made frantic telephone calls, Nathan was scanning the aisles of a local hardware store. He purchased a circular saw, gloves, goggles, and a face mask. When he got home, Nathan dismembered his stepsister's body in the bathtub. In later testimony, Nathan admitted, it was surreal, but I just did it. He took the pieces of Becky's body and packed them in salt, presumably in an attempt to prevent decomposition until he figured out what to do next. Corpses can start to smell as little as 24 hours after death, and bodily bloating begins within three to five days. Nathan likely wanted to keep neighbors from smelling Becky's body and to keep the corpse from bloating so it would be easier to move. Still, neighbors reported hearing thumping and sawing noises throughout the afternoon. And although it's clear that dismembering Becky's body was loud and took many hours, Shauna maintains that at the time, she had no idea what Nathan was doing in the bathroom. Around 6 p.m., Darren called Nathan and Shauna to let them know Becky still hadn't come home. His frustration with the police was mounting, They'd yet to show up to the house, so he begged Nathan to come over and help him write a Facebook post, asking friends, family, and anyone living in Bristol to keep an eye out for Becky. Nathan sat next to his stepfather on the couch. He watched Darren's face as he spoke and took note of his tightened lips, his eyebrows drawn close together. Nathan tried to match these movements, hoping he looked just as worried and confused as Darren did. His stepfather kept talking, but Nathan hardly heard his words. Every time he blinked, he saw Becky's body, cut up and packed in salt. Darren handed Nathan his phone so he could type out the Facebook post. When Nathan grabbed the device, he saw what looked like dried blood underneath his own fingernails. His stomach dropped. Nathan glanced at his stepfather, but Darren hadn't noticed anything. Nathan took a deep breath. He pulled his eyebrows close together, feigning concern, and typed. After a few drafts, Nathan and Darren came up with a short plea to post on Facebook. It said, Please share, missing 16-year-old girl. Please private message if you have seen or know anything. Please let me know she is safe. Nathan pressed share, releasing the message to the public. He hoped people would scroll past the photo of his stepsister and assume she'd run away. If they did, he just might be able to get away with murder. Next, Nathan tries to scrub away the evidence of his crime. Hi, listeners. Have you heard ParCast's newest original series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer, men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my good friend, host Alastair Murden, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers. Dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. 
you'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who mixed deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On the morning of February 19th, 2015, 28-year-old Nathan Matthews murdered his stepsister, 16-year-old Becky Watts. The next day, he dismembered her body while his young girlfriend claimed she was sitting nearby, oblivious. He then left the pieces packed in salt while he went back to St. George and helped his stepfather, 50-year-old Darren Goldsworthy, write a Facebook post looking for his missing daughter. When the police finally showed up at Darren and Angie's home, they took statements from Darren, Angie, Nathan, and Shauna, then left quickly. Officers seemed certain Becky was a runaway and would return sooner rather than later. But Becky's parents weren't convinced. After Nathan and Shauna went back home, Darren and Angie lay awake. Still under the assumption that Becky left the house to go see her boyfriend, they thought she must have been kidnapped by a stranger on the way. By the next morning, Saturday, February 21st, Darren's Facebook post had been shared over 800 times and the hashtag FindBecky was trending in the UK. With Becky's disappearance gaining national attention, Bristol police began an official search into her assumed kidnapping. While police gathered evidence, Nathan went on more shopping trips, this time with Shauna. On Saturday, the couple purchased rubber gloves, bleach, and three rolls of cling wrap. On Sunday, they went back for reinforced trash bags, duct tape, various cleaning products, and a heavy-duty sponge. By Monday, February 23rd, Becky's body was packed in cling wrap and stuffed into four suitcases at Nathan and Shauna's house. Their bathtub, once bloodied, was scrubbed clean. The same day, police held a press conference. Darren and Angie appealed directly to their daughter, begging her to come home and reminding her how much they loved her. They held out hope that Becky would be found alive Afterward, police tried to narrow down their list of possible suspects in Becky's disappearance. According to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, less than 1% of missing children cases are a result of non-family abductions. Although it was possible Becky had been kidnapped by a stranger, it was highly unlikely. So police narrowed in on the last people who saw her alive, Nathan and Shauna. When the police tried to schedule interviews with the couple, they were evasive. This struck investigators as a major red flag. Nathan and Shauna wanted to keep investigators as far away from their home as possible until the suitcases could be relocated. On the evening of February 23rd, Nathan contacted his friend, Carl Demetrius. According to Carl, all Nathan said was that he needed some heavy items moved and he was willing to pay 10,000 pounds to get the job done. 
The proposition made Carl nervous, so he approached his coworker, James Ireland, to ask for advice. James saw it as an opportunity. He said they could use a van from their work to move the items, then split the money 50-50. Shortly after midnight, Carl and James arrived at Nathan and Shauna's house. Although Shauna claimed she stayed home that night, Carl and James said she actively participated in the following events. Over the course of about an hour, the group packed the suitcases into the back of the van. Carl and James didn't ask what they contained. They assumed it was either drugs or stolen electronics that Nathan wanted to store before eventually selling. They knew they were doing something illegal, but they didn't know just how heinous Nathan's crime was. Surveillance footage showed the van driving from Nathan's house to Carl's. It was nearly 1.30 a.m. when the van pulled up to Carl's house, but Nathan was too paranoid to feel tired. The drive had been nerve-wracking. Even though Carl drove under the speed limit, Nathan was sure they'd get pulled over at any moment and the jig would be up. Now that they were at the house, Nathan couldn't wait to get the whole thing over with. As they lugged the heavy cases into the backyard, he pushed away thoughts of what they contained. He assured himself they'd done everything right. The bathtub was scrubbed clean, the evidence was hidden, and his family didn't suspect a thing. Once the cases were packed inside the shed, Nathan cracked a smile. It was going to be okay. It was over. Nobody would ever find out what happened to Becky Watts. By Wednesday, February 25th, 2015, officers had virtually no solid evidence and public interest in Becky's case continued to mount. Civilian search parties combed through local parks and forests. Meanwhile, Darren and Angie were in near constant contact with law enforcement. Although Nathan and Shauna's avoidance looked suspicious to police, Darren and Angie believed in the couple's innocence wholeheartedly. Darren saw their absence not as an outgrowth of their guilt, but as a symptom of their own confusion and pain following Becky's disappearance. Police, however, weren't convinced and Nathan and Shauna knew it. On Friday, February 27th, a full week since Darren reported Becky missing, Nathan and Shauna finally agreed to be interviewed. The couple's stories of what happened on the morning of February 19th matched perfectly, a little too perfectly, in fact. Most investigators know that even when people are telling the truth, small inconsistencies in their memories are bound to arise. But Nathan and Shauna's stories fit together so neatly that Bristol police believed it indicated collusion. Nathan and Shauna lived in their own private world in which fantasies of violence and sexual experiences with young girls were normalized and even encouraged. It seems likely that Nathan was ultimately responsible for creating that world. According to Dr. Stuart Kirby, a professor of policing and criminal investigation at the University of Central Lancashire, Nathan was a dominant person in the relationship and Shauna deferred to his fantasies. Because Nathan spent years grooming Shauna when she was a minor, 
he exercised substantial psychological influence over her. Text messages from a few months before Becky's murder showed her discussing kidnapping a teenage girl. It's possible that Shauna became so desensitized to violence and pedophilic fantasies that she eventually became a participant in Nathan's plot. Officers were sure the couple was lying about what happened on the morning of February 19th, but they needed more than just suspicion to place Nathan and Shauna under arrest. They went back to Darren and Angie's house, the presumed scene of the crime, to search for evidence of an abduction or a struggle. It didn't take long to find what they needed. On the doorframe leading into Becky's bedroom, police found spatterings of blood, one of which contained a fingerprint. Officers sent the evidence to a lab and received the results the next day. The blood on the doorframe belonged to Becky Watts. The fingerprint belonged to Nathan Matthews. With this evidence, Bristol police placed Nathan and Shauna under arrest for kidnapping. When officers interrogated them separately, their carefully orchestrated stories fractured. Shauna told police Nathan found his stepsister's disappearance very difficult, but Nathan openly admitted that he didn't particularly like Becky. Shauna said Nathan missed Becky, yet Nathan was adamant that he and his stepsister had never been close. According to him, they hadn't so much as texted one another in nearly six months. Nathan's animosity towards Becky raised suspicion further, especially when juxtaposed with Shauna's insistence that the siblings got along. While Nathan and Shauna remained in custody, Darren and Angie publicly stated that finding their daughter was still their highest priority. But privately, Darren felt like Nathan and Shauna's arrests were absurd. He resented the fact that his stepson, who he believed to be fundamentally good, was being treated like a criminal. Darren thought police were wasting time looking into the family while Becky's kidnapper went free. Regardless of how Darren felt, officers went to search Nathan and Shauna's home. Police couldn't have been prepared for what they found. The couple lived in squalor. The house was so cluttered that in most places, the floor wasn't visible at all. A refrigerator and freezer blocked the front door from opening fully. Precarious stacks of dirty dishes and empty takeout containers covered practically every surface. The house was so filthy and difficult to navigate that at first, police didn't realize Nathan and Shauna had an upstairs bathroom. When they walked in, they saw the space was practically unusable. The sink was full of dishes and a microwave sat on top of the toilet. The only area in the entire house that wasn't dirty was the upstairs bathtub. It looked freshly cleaned, almost like Nathan and Shauna had recently scrubbed away evidence. Police returned the next day to sift through more clutter. They uncovered two stun guns and three receipts that showed Nathan and Shauna had purchased a circular saw and various cleaning products in the last week. With this, officers had enough evidence to indict Nathan and Shauna on suspicion of murder. Shauna continued to deny any involvement in the crime or cover-up, 
so police set their sights on obtaining a confession from Nathan. He wasn't tough to crack. On March 2nd, soon after police told Nathan his home had been forensically searched, his lawyer provided officers with a written, signed confession. It said, I, Nathan Charles Matthews, accept that I am responsible for the death of Becky Watts. I wanted to kidnap her to scare her and teach her a lesson. The confession revealed that Becky's body was hidden in a garden shed at Nine Barton Court. It also attempted to absolve Shauna of all responsibility. The end of the statement read, Shauna did not know anything about me causing the death of Rebecca or my attempt to dispose of and hide the body. Had she known, she would have reported me to the police. Many people took issue with Nathan's statement. Although he confessed to Becky's murder, he maintained that it was an accident. However, Angie, Nathan's own mother, said she believed the murder was purposeful. Officers also doubted Shauna's innocence. They said Nathan's attempts to absolve Shauna showed either that he was extraordinarily loyal or she had more control over him than both made out. When police asked Shauna why they should believe she wasn't involved, she responded, you have no proof. At the time, she was right. There was nothing concrete to tie Shauna to the crime other than her going to the store with Nathan on the Saturday and Sunday after Becky's murder. That was all about to change, however, when Bristol police searched the garden shed at 9 Barton Court. Up next, police open the shed full of horror. Now, back to the story. Since beginning their investigation into the disappearance of 16-year-old Becky Watts, Bristol police slowly closed in on 28-year-old Nathan Matthews and 21-year-old Shauna Hoare. On March 2, 2015, after learning his home had been searched, Nathan gave police a written confession. He maintained Becky's murder was an accident and asserted that Shauna had no knowledge of the crime or cover-up. Nathan's statement also gave police the exact location of Becky's remains. Inside the shed at Nine Barton Court, police found four suitcases, each of which contained pieces of Becky's body. Near the suitcases were Becky's missing phone, tablet, laptop, and clothing items. Police also uncovered a knife and saw contaminated with blood and hair, as well as a set of handcuffs and two pairs of goggles. Police sent Becky's remains to a medical examiner, who found over 40 defensive wounds on her body. Although Nathan said he killed Becky by strangling her around the neck, the examiner found that the likely cause of death was actually suffocation over the nose and mouth. With only two hands, it would have been difficult for Nathan to strangle and suffocate Becky at the same time, especially while she was fighting back so hard. It seemed that Nathan was either lying about how she died or he had an accomplice in her murder. Perhaps most damaging to Nathan's statement was the presence of 15 post-mortem stab wounds on Becky's abdomen. These injuries could not have been inflicted accidentally. 
Although Nathan maintains that the crime was not sexually motivated, his pedophilia wasn't a secret, and text messages from December 2014 showed him and Shauna discussing kidnapping a teenager for sexual purposes. It's impossible to know why Nathan stabbed Becky, but because she was already dead by that point, it couldn't have been to kill her. Instead, it may have been sexually motivated. Dr. Anthony Penizotto, a former FBI forensic psychologist, writes that postmortem stabbing in the upper torso is an example of a psychological perversion called peakerism. Peakerism is a form of sexual sadism in which a person gains gratification from stabbing or otherwise penetrating another person's skin, and the act of stabbing itself is sometimes viewed as psychosexual. According to FBI behavioral analysts Robert Hazelwood and John Douglas, sexually motivated murderers rarely use firearms. Instead, they utilize strangulation, blunt force, or a pointed, sharp instrument. The manner of Becky's death, as well as the wounds inflicted on her body post-mortem, are consistent with this. After completing Becky's autopsy, the medical examiner had one more formality. Darren had to identify his daughter's body. Darren walked into the morgue, his legs weak. His entire life had been stolen from him in a matter of weeks. He used to have a happy wife, a beautiful daughter, and a stepson raising a child of his own. Now, Angie lived in a daze. Becky was gone, and Darren never wanted to look at Nathan again. The morgue was cold, white, and sterile. Darren was there to identify Becky's body, but a part of him hoped, against all reason, that the corpse wouldn't be hers. By some miracle, Becky would still be alive, and the last three weeks would prove to be one long, terrible dream. But no, his hopes were shattered. There was his daughter on the table. Darren leaned over Becky's body and cried, for her, for himself, and for their family. The medical examiner had tried to put her back together, but Darren could still see where Nathan decapitated her. The image of the stitches across his daughter's throat would never leave his mind. There was no punishment too severe for him. Bristol police were as disturbed by the grisly crime as Darren was, and they were determined to prosecute everyone involved. It seemed impossible that Shauna had nothing to do with the crime, but officers needed evidence that she had a hand in Becky's murder. Police sent the goggles and suitcases found at Nine Barton Court to a lab to be tested for DNA evidence. One pair of goggles came back with Nathan's DNA. The other came back with Shauna's. Her DNA was also found on one of the cases containing Becky's remains, indicating that she must have been involved in the dismemberment and disposal of Becky's body. On March 4th, 2015, it was announced that Nathan and Shauna were charged with the murder of Becky Watts. When this information was released, the public turned towards Nathan and Shauna with unmatched rage. People felt the pain that Darren and Angie were going through, the horrible realization that their son had committed an act of unimaginable cruelty. 
While Nathan and Shauna awaited trial, Darren and Angie planned their daughter's funeral. People from all over the UK contributed to a crowdfunding campaign for her service. On April 17, 2015, so many mourners gathered at St. Ambrose Church that they exceeded the building's capacity and lined the streets outside. The service was broadcast over a loudspeaker so everyone in attendance could hear. From that point forward, Becky became known as the Angel of Bristol. Although the people of Bristol had taken steps towards honoring Becky's memory, they'd still yet to give her the justice she deserved. It would be another six months before Nathan and Shauna were brought before a jury. Leading up to the trial, Shauna and her lawyer argued that she shouldn't be charged as an equal participant in the crime. Although it was clear that she assisted in the dismemberment and disposal of Becky's remains, there wasn't enough evidence to prove she had anything to do with the murder. This, along with Shauna's insistence that she too was a victim of Nathan's manipulation and violence, convinced the judge to lower her charge from murder to manslaughter. On October 6, 2015, Nathan and Shauna entered the courtroom. They were greeted by a long line of people who wore blue ribbons in Becky's honor. Nathan was described as emotional on the stand. He stuck to his previous story that Becky's murder was accidental and not sexually motivated. But the prosecution showed Nathan purchased the stun guns he kept in his kidnapping kit two months before the crime and bought batteries for them on the morning of the murder. Furthermore, computer and cell phone records prove that nearly every day, Nathan viewed age-play pornography featuring women dressed like schoolgirls. He had over 200 pornographic images saved on his laptop. Mere hours before murdering Becky, he watched a 17-minute video depicting a teenage girl being sexually assaulted. Still, he pled not guilty to Becky's murder. Shauna also pled not guilty. She argued that the texts about kidnapping a teenage girl with Nathan were sarcastic. She even tried to convince the jury that the only reason her DNA was found on objects in the garden shed was because they were once in her house. She described herself as unlucky and in the wrong place at the wrong time. The prosecution said Shauna's assertion of innocence was ridiculous, and the people of Bristol agreed. On November 11, 2015, the jury deliberated for just three and a half hours before reaching a verdict. They found both Nathan and Shauna guilty of all charges. The judge ruled that the murder was a sexually motivated plot organized by both parties, with Shauna pandering to Nathan's fantasies and following his lead. On November 13, 2015, 29-year-old Nathan Matthews was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 33 years. 22-year-old Shauna, though cleared of murder charges, was convicted of manslaughter and sentenced to a minimum of 17 years. Nathan and Shauna have both since attempted to appeal their convictions and been denied. In 2017, Nathan was attacked by a fellow inmate who poured a jug of boiling butter over his face and neck. 
Shauna has also reportedly been the target of attacks. According to her close friend, Shauna has been beaten so badly that she has needed to be resuscitated twice. Neither Darren nor Angie has visited Nathan or Shauna in prison. Even after everything they went through, Darren and Angie stayed together and continued living in the home where Becky was murdered. To this day, Darren keeps her bedroom locked and untouched. It is a permanent tribute to his daughter's life and memory. Tanya Watts, Becky's biological mother said, I feel Becky's presence all around me. I know that she is up in heaven. I know that she is at peace. The city of Bristol honored Becky's memory by placing a lamppost in St. George Park. Each time it lights up, it serves as a reminder of her short but bright life. Angie says she wants to visit her son, but only to make sure he understands the horror of what he did. Angie said, I want him to know I'll die brokenhearted and I'll never forgive him for what he's done. I think I love him, but I'm not really sure. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Crimes of Passion, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, listeners. Don't forget to check out the gripping new podcast original series, Medical Murders. From trauma surgeons to hospice staff, medical professionals are trained to give exceptional care. But what about those who use their skills not to heal, but hurt? Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.